speaking. If you believed Moses, he's speaking here to the Jews, the Pharisees, if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. I think one of the reasons why we struggle as Christians, just to give you the application shot right up front, one of the reasons why we return time and again to habitual sin, one of the reasons why we approach God like he's a lawyer full of fear and shame, no offense to lawyers, is that we don't understand the Old Testament. Our failure to actually place the riches of God in their full form. We are content with little piecemeal riches, little stones, not the full vein of the mind, the diamond mind of Scripture. Um, we need to recover the drama of the Bible. I think I mentioned that the very first time we met uh, a few weeks ago in this class. Uh, we need to recover the drama. Covenant theology really is the drama, unfolding the drama of our relationship with God. And the biggest question with all of this is, what do we do with Moses? What do we do with Sinai? What do we do with this question? We're going to look at it the next two weeks, but the very beginning, John, 4, John 5, 46, Jesus says, if you believe Moses, you would believe me. I think if you want to solve so many of the problems that people get into when they try to look at the Old Testament, particularly at Deuteronomy or Leviticus, you could just know this one verse. This one verse solves so many of our issues. Jesus says, if we knew Moses, we know Jesus better. That in a shadowy way, there's something in the story of Pharaoh and Moses and God and Exodus and Sinai that shows us more of Jesus Christ. So let's look and discover the riches of that bounty. Let me, let me pray for us, and then we'll, we'll, uh, I'll ask you kind of an opening question, then we'll get into it. Let me pray. Father, we ask that you would be pleased to grant to us some of the riches of your grace to show us more deeply in Christ through these old words, your new and ever-present ways. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So, opening question. The Bible's a big book. The Bible's a big book. If you had to make one break in the Bible, one division in the Bible, if you had to choose one place in the Bible to make a cut and say, this is the biggest point of change, if you had to make one cut in the Bible and say, this was different than that, where would you make your cut? What are some of the options you can make your cut? If you had to make one change, one, one place where things change so deeply from point A to point B that after this verse, or after the story, after this book, things change. Where would you make your cut? Because everybody, make, everybody makes a cut, don't we? We all make cuts. Greg, what's your cut? Genesis 3. The whole chapter? The fall. Okay, why the fall? Okay. Okay, great. So creation, the, the fall, right? Huge, huge break. Great. Good, good option. Lance. Okay, great. The flood. Why the flood? Group, but it's, uh, we're all of Adam, but we're also all of 
Great, great point, right? God, God floods the world that what Peter calls the world that then was, you know, and now we're in this world. Yeah, great. Other candidates? I think there's some obvious ones. I mean, our, yeah. Okay. Why? No, these are all good. These are, these are some that I would not have uh, concluded. Okay. I don't think it's where I would do it, but obviously, can't do that. Okay. Yeah, very good. I was waiting for that. Spirit given, all that sort of stuff, yeah. Okay, resurrection, right? Y'all, y'all haven't mentioned some of the big ones, right? The cross, the resurrection, these are other ones that typically look to. I mean, and of course, there's the one that every Bible comes equipped with. There's the big break that every Bible comes equipped with that none of y'all has mentioned yet. It's Old New Testament. I mean, that's the big break, right? This is all Old Testament and then New Testament. Just grab this old stuff and get to the new. And that's the big break that we're used to experiencing. That was Old Testament. That was Israel. That was weird. Stories are cool, but that's about it. This is new. Now, I'll give you mine. Thank you all, by the way, for playing along with me. I'll give you mine. Greg got the closest, but he, I thought he was going to get it. And then that would have ruined the whole experiment because he was the first one to answer. But uh, he got very close, but he didn't quite get it, Greg. <clears throat> here's, here, here's my big break. Genesis 3, 15. My big break. Genesis 3, 15. I will put enmity between you and the woman, God says to the serpent, and between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. We covered this a few weeks back. This is, the I would argue, the big break. You, you could, if you were writing your Bible, you could put a line before and after, right? This is the break, what the, what the scholars call, right, the, uh, the first gospel or the pre-gospel. First gospel, the, the prototype gospel, if you will. Here we have something different. If you want me to, fan, to gussy it up with fancy theology, I can. The, the gussying up of it is simply the division between the covenant of works and the covenant of grace that we've been talking about. Before Genesis 3.15, everything about being with God involves you doing. Everything involves working. Everything involves aiming and striving and fulfilling and obeying and multiplying and all that stuff. After it, God initiates a new plan. God, well, it's a plan he already had in mind, of course. But to us, it's new. It's a plan of grace, a plan of redemption, a plan of salvation, a plan of the head crusher of the serpent, the one who will destroy the evil one and bruise and break his head. And so I would argue that everything after that 
all these covenant relationships that we have gotten into with Abraham, Noah, we can put in the category, broadly speaking, of grace. And that, I, I want to know that I did not grow up with that. I don't, most of us did not grow up with that view either. We're going to get into the views that I grew up with, and I think most Americans grew up with in the Christian church, most evangelical, quote-unquote, Americans grew up with. But broadly speaking, most of us grew up with believing that that's not the great division. The great division is old-new. The great division is Old Testament and New Testament. That was Israel back in the day, and we're in the church. And you can parse that out differently, but uh, we're not we're not Israel, right? That would be the, uh, the idea. And yet, if I even put to you from John 5, 46, I think Christ himself says, if you understood Moses, you would understand me. Now, I want you all to turn to two, two verses in Romans. I want somebody to read Romans 3.31. I want somebody to read Romans 6.14. 3.31, Romans. When you get there, just uh, you can do, you shout it out. Romans 3.31 first, though, please. We uphold the law. We don't overthrow the law. Great. Romans 3.31. Now Romans 6.14. We uphold the law. Paul says in 3.31, 6.14, we're not under the law, but under grace. Paul is an idiot because he contradicts himself within like three chapters, apparently. It seems like he's saying, on the one hand, we uphold the law, and then he says, we're not under the law. So which is it, Paul? Are we upholding or are we not upholding it? And again, over the next two weeks, that's my little teaser as we begin to discuss, we'll look particularly at the role of the law next time in the Old Testament. But today, I just want to set up some basics some basic guidelines for how we look at the covenant with Moses. And the first thing we have to do is to see the backdrop, the background. I've already argued the biggest change is Genesis 3.15. That means that, I'll just tell you right now, um, I'm going to argue that the, you can turn to, your, turn to, turn to the back, uh, your handout, I give you selected uh, uh, verses, and at the bottom, um, a quotation from our confession of faith, which I'll read now. Very bottom quote. This covenant of grace was differently administered in the time of the law and in the time of the gospel. The time of the law is Mount Sinai. The time of the gospel is now. But they're saying, and we would agree, there is one covenant of grace from Genesis 3.15 all the way to today. Let me show that to you as we look first at the very end of Genesis. Please turn in your Bibles to the last verse of Genesis and the first verse of Exodus. This is Genesis 50, verse 26. Last verse of Genesis, first verse of Exodus. Could somebody read the last verse of the book of Genesis? So Joseph died being 110 years old, and they embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. Joseph dead, 
Abraham's great-grandson Joseph, he is dead. He is the promised son of the covenant. He's in a casket in Egypt. It's like, a, it's like when our soldiers died over in Iraq or Afghanistan, they couldn't get back home. They couldn't get buried back home. You know, you, you, you leave nobody behind, and yet the reality is sometimes people are left behind. No matter how much the Marines may say, you know, leave no soldier behind, sometimes it happens. Here it is, right? Joseph is in Egypt. He's dead. He's buried. It's implicitly weak. And the real question is, we've looked at Abraham. We've looked at God's promise to Abraham. Is the best that God can do a grave in Egypt? Is that the most powerful thing he can do? Can he actually bring people back or not? Now, I'm going to read the first verse of Exodus. You can be on the very next page if you're in Genesis 50. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household. We won't get into further than that. Now, that's English. The Hebrew is better. This is the one of the, my bugbears with the ESV. It doesn't include the very first word in Hebrew in the book of Exodus. The very first word is and. The very first word. It's a very one of the most important ands in the Bible. And. And. And these are the names of the sons of Israel. What does that and tell us? Stories continuing. Yeah. You know, they would have scrolls. They would read, of course. You come here. Joseph dead. Joseph in Egypt. I mean, the, the promise seems to be null and void. It's ineffectual. And then we come. They read the next book. They open up the next scroll. Very first word, and. And these are. And these are the names of the sons of Israel. What that tells us is that it's not just the continuation of God's people. It's the continuation of God's promise. I wouldn't just look here, but this is one powerful piece of evidence that the covenant of grace in the first gospel, the covenant of grace we've looked at, the way God relates to his people, not by us striving, but by him giving, by him doing, that way continues from Genesis to Exodus. That way continues from book one to book two. That way continues from Joseph through the story. Now, let me read a little more here. Let me read verse 7. Exodus 1, verse 7. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. What does that language, those vocab words, what does that language remind you of? Fruitful, multiplied, increased greatly. Genesis 1. Yeah. It reminds us of the Garden of Eden. I mean, what was the command given to Adam? Multiply, fill the earth, increase, all that jazz. Here we have Israel like rabbits multiplying. They are fulfilling the promise that God gave in the garden. They're fulfilling the promise that God gave to Abraham. I'll make many nations of you. It feels a lot like, in this and section, a lot like creation. What's the big difference, though? What's the one big difference? Sin, and particularly, how do we know there's sin? There's one marker here that shows us that this is not right. On the one hand, they're, they're multiplying like rabbits. That's great. But what's the one issue? 
They're in the wrong place. Yeah. Good job, Stacy. Gold star. They're in the wrong place. They're multiplying, but they're not in the right land. They're multiplying not in the promised land. They're multiplying in Egypt. You see what this shows you? This shows you that in some way, Israel is making little creatures like God said. They're making little images of themselves. We call babies like God said, but they're not in paradise. They're in Egypt. And then you have Pharaoh, and you have, the, you have the plagues, and you have Moses, and you have the Red Sea, you have dead Egyptians, you have living Israelites, etc., etc. And the point is that though part of the blessing that God gave is being fulfilled, it's not all there yet. God has to get them to the right place. And so we begin to see here that from Abraham to Moses, it's the same promise, and God is working to fulfill His glorious great promise. Now, any question on that so far? Comments, cares, concerns? Okay. Turn to Exodus 20. Turn to Exodus 20. God speaks to his people. Could somebody read verse 2, please? I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Ten Commandments. The law. Right? Classic, classic summary of the law. How does the law begin? It begins, it begins with this preface. God says, this is what I am. This is who I am. I am the Lord. I'm your God. Not just a God. Not just the God. Your God. That is personal relationship. That is covenantal presence. He uses the, the covenant name, Lord, Yahweh. I am the Lord, your God. What have I done? I brought you out. I have done this magical, majestic, marvelous work where I bring you out of slavery. You could not do it yourself. You were in chains. I brought you out of the house of slavery, the land of Egypt. This reveals, just this by itself, there's so much more I could give you, but just this by itself reveals that the substance of Moses, the substance of this covenant, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the second half of Exodus, the substance of this arrangement is not do, 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 or else. Obey or else. Obey or else. We'll get to that next week in more detail. And we'll, we'll examine the fact that there, is, there are very clear obedience required. There are very clear blessings and curses related to obedience. We'll, we'll unpack that. We'll, we'll untangle it, rather. Not unpack. I hate unpack. Everybody uses unpack. We'll untangle it. We'll disentangle the, the knot. It's not Gordian, so we can do it. But here, the very preface to the classic understanding of the law, the part of the Bible that people want to put in front of courthouses. This is the part where people think of law. They think of, this is law. And yet, so many people rip it out of its covenantal context. This is one of the issues I have, I suppose, with people wanting to put it in front of courthouses, is that they, they, don't, they never include verse 2. Because verse 2 is not given to the state courthouse. Verse 2 is given to the covenantal people of God. It's given to Israel. And implicitly, therefore, to us, it shows what kind of God they had and what kind of God we have. 
This reveals that the dynamic of Mount Sinai, the dynamic of the covenant with Moses, is fundamentally gracious. It is fundamentally at base and root about the indicative and only then the imperative. Fundamentally, first and foremost, about the call of grace and the God of grace and then the law. It is founded first and foremost not on what Israel will do for God, but on what God hath done. It's that difference between us doing and God dunning. He has done it. He has done it for us. Therefore, you shall have no other gods before me. Therefore, you shall not make for yourself a cause image and so on and so forth. Right? The ten words, the ten commandments follow this critical preface. I'm hammering this home because this helps to underscore the fact that there is, I've made this point over and over again, because we're so unfamiliar with it, there is one covenant of grace from Genesis 3.15 all the way through the rest of history. There is one thread. It's not a scarlet thread. It is the thread of gold, the thread of God's grace that runs throughout history. Um, Let me ask you to turn to the back of your your handout, and I'll read a couple of, couple of, of, of verses here. Deuteronomy 37, this is the second verse from the top. Because he loved your fathers and chose their children after them and brought you out of Egypt with his own presence, therefore you should keep his statutes and his commandments. Deuteronomy 7, next one. You are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. It was not because you're more numerous than other people. The Lord says loving you and chose you. But because the Lord loves you, it's keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery. Treasure possession, holy to the Lord. If you had to summarize, if you had to summarize the first five books, the Torah, the Pentateuch, if you had to summarize the covenant at Sinai, what is the purpose of the Torah? What is the purpose of these first five books? What is the major theme? You see it in Leviticus most clearly. What is the major theme of these books? Separation. Clean. Very good, Patrick. Clean, unclean. Other thoughts? Other themes? Very good. Other themes? I mean, that, that's a very good, very good answer. Other, other, other themes? How would you summarize? I think very often we find it hard to summarize things because most of our Christianity has been built around memorizing a verse here or there. It's hard. That's one reason why we're doing this whole class on covenant theology, because for many of us, we don't know how to put our Bibles together. You memorize a verse here, you memorize a verse there, and we don't really know, how do I read all this stuff? I mean, we read it, you know, if we're, if we're devout, we, we, we read through it, we read through the Bible, but how do I put it together? Greg, what would you say?
Very good. Very good. Okay. I'm going to give you uh, Mike Morales, who I think he teaches at Greenville Seminary. He says, he says this. The Pentateuch's main theme is the Lord's opening a way for humanity to dwell in the divine presence. He says the center of the Torah, the center of the first five books of the Bible is Leviticus 16, which, as you may know, is the classic Day of Atonement. The very center, the very center of these books is God's opening a way for us to dwell. We are unclean, right? So it's about God cleaning us up. It's about God washing us that we may stand and live with him. And that was the great promise. I I put to you before, I think last week, I put to you that the great promise of Abraham is not the land. We get obsessed about the land. It's not the, the, the people. We get focused on the people, Israel, Gentiles. The great promise is, I will be your God. I will be with you, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. The great promise is God's with us and we're with him. That's why Emmanuel is so magical, so beautiful, so critical. God with us, dwelling. Now, if that's a correct thesis from Dr. Morales, I don't think it's, it's a quite, a, quite a good one, then what does that mean about the giving of the law at Mount Sinai? It means, and here's the key point, that the giving of the law connects to this whole notion of being fit, being clean, being able to dwell with God. The law is not given first and foremost that you might obey it. God does not give the law that you might obey it. Rather, the the broader perspective of the law is helping you worship and dwell with God. Therefore, the covenant with Moses is not using the law to create a relationship between God and Israel. This is a very crucial point. We get mixed up on this so many times. God does not use the law to make Israel have a relationship with him. It's already there. The relationship's already been established. He's already already established it. Rather, the law provides a way for that relationship to be maintained, particularly by means of atonement. This is why the law cannot be separated from the sacrifices. The law goes together. The giving of the Torah goes together with the giving of the way of atonement, the giving of the sacrifices. They're, they're linked together, and many of us focus on one or the other. Give me the law so I can follow them. Let me delve into the, the sacrifices. They're put together because they're, they're a pathway that God provides to maintain his relationship with his people, particularly by means of atonement. Now, let me hit on a few things. Any, any questions on any of that so far? Let me, let me describe. Um, I've hit really hard on the fact that the covenant with Moses is connected to the covenant of grace, right? It's all one big thread, but there are differences. Let me hit on, what do I have here? One, two, three, six differences. Six differences that qualify the covenant with Moses 
right? Christ says, if you knew Moses, you'd know me, and that's true, right? It, it's, it's a gracious covenant, but, but it's not the new covenant. It's not where we are. It's the same reality, different administrations, different secretaries. That's the way I've been putting it. Same reality that we have in Jesus, but a different secretary. Six ways this Mosaic secretary, the Mosaic covenant is different. First, this is a, it's primarily a Jewish covenant. Primarily, this is a Jewish administration. This is what Paul argues in Romans chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. I'll turn there. He says, What advantage has the Jew? What is the value of circumcision? Much in every way the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. Their faithlessness does not nullify the faithfulness of God. Right? The Jews were given God's oracles. There is something special, therefore, to the Jews. It's primarily a Jewish administration. Not exclusively. Of course, there were Gentiles brought in from the time, but predominantly. That makes sense? Clear? More clear than mud? Second, shadowy. It is a shadow administration. Particularly, Paul says in Colossians 2, verse 17, it's shadowy when it comes to its ceremonies. He says, Colossians 2, 17, these are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Shadow. What's a shadow? A shadow is not, not the reality. It's a, a form of the reality, but not the reality itself. It's the effect of the reality. The, the reality of a person cast a shadow on the ground. But it's not the, the, the substance. Third, temporary. You know, the, the thing about having a washing machine and a dryer is that if you had a washing machine 20 years ago, you were probably better off than getting one today. Because if you know anything about, I mean, I know very little. I know one fact about washing machines. So let me pretend to be amazing. I'm not about them. The one fact I know about them is that 20 years ago, they were made to last longer. They were made to last longer. These days, you have all the, all the gizmos, all the, all, the thing, all the dials you can show, all the buttons you can push. They may be more efficient, but they last not nearly as long. They are planned, here's the phrase, planned obsolescence. They are designed for you to have to throw them out and buy a new one in a couple of years. Because guess who makes the money on that? It's not you. It's the company. You know, it's the washing machine, the dryer. And that, that's true of so many of the products we make today. They may be, they may be great. They may, they may do things well, but they don't last very long. You know, I had to get a new iPhone battery a couple of years ago because my, mine was uh, conking out. They're, they're not designed to last forever. And the same thing is true of Moses. Moses, the covenant at Sinai, was not designed to last forever. It was not meant, it was never meant to last forever. It was temporary. This is what Paul says in Galatians 3, 24 and 25. The law was our guardian until Christ came. 
now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. Uh, yes. Temporary. So that, that, that's the first three questions so far on this. Comments on this? All right, fourth. A little bit of a racing here. Covenant with Moses highlights condemnation. It is a particularly condemning covenant. What I mean by that is the condemnatory function of the law is highlighted, especially prominent. The more positive use of the law, we'll get to this all next week, but the more positive use of the law to as a rule for our life is not as dominant. It's, that's why, for example, you look at Deuteronomy 30, you compare it to Deuteronomy 29, the blessing section of the covenant in Deuteronomy is super small compared to the huge chapter on the, on, on the curses of the covenant. The curses are writ large, and the curses are actually enacted in the exile, which, again, we'll get into more uh, next time. So the condemning function of the law is more prominent. I'm not saying, don't, don't, don't mishear me here, I'm not saying that the Mosaic covenant is only about condemning people. I'm simply saying it's more prominent. After all, as Christians, we know that part of the function of God's law is to condemn sin in us. It's a question of the balance of abortion. We have the same, we have part of the same covenant of grace, and the same covenant of grace says, I'm your father, I discipline my child. And therefore, there is condemnation sometimes. Just that with Christ, there's the, the proportionality is less than what it was under under Moses, because Moses is prior to the coming of Christ. Questions on any of that? That can be a little more complicated, but maybe not. Fifth, this relates to the fourth. It is a weak covenant. It is a weak covenant that brings about a curse. It's a weak covenant that, that results in the curse of exile. This is what you see in, in the prophets, but if you want a place to go to in the New Testament, Romans 8, 3. Right, where Paul talks about the role of Christ becoming a curse, right? By sending his son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. The law, that is, considering the, the covenant at Mount Sinai, the law weakened by the flesh could not do it. It could not bring salvation. God did. Therefore. Six, finally. It's preparatory. It's preparation. You know that place where, where Paul says, look, Christ came born of a woman, born under the law? The, the law of Moses provides, you might call it this, provides a stadium, provides an arena of play for Jesus. It provides a place for Jesus, the great champion, Jesus, the great quarterback, to show his skill. Provide the place for Jesus to come on the scene and perform his perfect obedience in a way that we can recognize. Because after all, I mean, if you saw God in all his glory right now, if you saw God in all his perfection, you couldn't stand it. 
Part of the beauty of the incarnation is that Christ takes on the likeness of our sinful flesh without sin. And yet he comes and he performs. He performs love to God with all that he is. He performs love to neighbor. And he does so in the stadium of Moses. He does so as an Israelite. He does so under the law of Moses and all of its details. And he's able to parse out which of these 600 odd laws uh, am I keeping and which of these laws are the Pharisees kind of adding on things that I shouldn't be keeping. He's able to parse out where the boundary line is. He's able to say, I obey, and, and, and yet still, it's, it's, you read the Gospels. I mean, if you actually read these, the Gospels and you're at all sensitive to look at Jesus, you're, you're astounded at him. He does incredible things. He's beautiful. And yet, you can read about him. Because he's coming on the playing field of Moses. He's coming as a Jew, as an Israelite, under the law. He could have just come and obeyed you know, in, in, uh, in Africa sometime. And just blaze the trail. But he doesn't. He comes in a way that demonstrates to us his perfection. Greg. After any human attempt or, or opportunity to prove that we were good in and of ourselves failed miserably. Yeah. You know, the great mediator, Moses. Individuals, you know, the, 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 um, all the different uh, heroes there, uh, you know, the, the patriarchs. Then the, the idea of a nation being able to do it. Right, right. Israel fails miserably. The idea of a king, a great leader, could do it, failed miserably. idea yeah. of a spiritual guru, prophets, <laughs> all good. failed. Yeah. You know, so, so it... it it's so, as you say, and you cannot do this right, right, in and of yourselves, right. You are corrupt in every which way. Absolutely, I, mean, I think that's a very, very key point to know. God, it shows God's patience, but it also shows God gives time. God gives time for us to try and screw it up in all different ways, and yet there remains that command: do this and live. We'll get to that next week. But let me conclude, not with the command. Let me conclude here. Um, conclude here with the, the language of, uh, of Peter. I want you to turn to 1 Peter. I have it in the back if you want to, but uh, I may mean, I mean, I mean read a little more than just what I have in the back for us. 1 Peter 2. beginning in verse 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. What are the blessings of the covenant with Moses? The blessings of the covenant of Moses are this. It helps us to parse out. It helps us see what does it mean to be holy. And this was Patrick's point. If the summary of the covenant of Moses is us dwelling with God, though we are unclean, one of the beautiful things about what Peter does in chapter two in that in that paragraph is he links, he, he hyperlinks, he connects to on the one hand the law, right? Holy nation, treasured people for his own possession. Now, I mentioned that Deuteronomy seven. That's why I put it right above First Peter two just to help you with the connections there. 
you're a people holy to the Lord for his treasure possession. And then Peter says, yes, he picks up that language. He says, you're that people, Christian. Church, you're that Israel. And yet, Peter also links to Hosea. I know, ladies, you went through Hosea a few years ago, right? What is it? The names of Hosea's kids, right? Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you were no mercy, you had no mercy. God showed no mercy, but now you have received mercy. You see, just in a paragraph, Peter links together all of the Old Testament, the law and the prophets. And he says, this is you, Christian. Why is it important to study the Old Testament? Because it's not that old in a sense. It's all these things. Yes, it is weak. It is preparatory. It is Jewish by, by nature. It is shadowy. It's simple. All these things are true. But still, with all these caveats in place, it presents to us the grace of God. All these caveats in place, it is the same God we have to deal with. It is his same grace, and therefore it's worthy of our study. So next week we'll look at <laughs> the more challenging question. What to do with all the law? What to do with all the condemnation? What to do with all the blessings and curses? That's where people get really uh, tripped up. Um, but I wanted to establish this very crucial point simply today, that the covenant of grace, the way God relates to his people from Genesis 3.15 onward is the same. It just has different secretaries, different administrations. It looks a little different, but it's the same God and the same grace underneath. Any last questions, comments, concerns, cares? Okay. Patrick, maybe you can close us in a word of prayer. Thank you. Oh, Lord, our God, we praise you that you have done what we could not do your own life and work on this. We praise you for it. Help us to rest and trust that our hope in you is not that impossible for us today. And we can fully see you face to face with your people. We have not voluntary. Give us a four-day service before you worship you. Amen. Thank you all.